Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, the message. Now, God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the, ne and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. I've already told you about the, the guy that was uh, lifting money out of the collection plate. Remember him? He was the guy that the elders didn't talk to about what he was doing. They just simply said, don't collect money anymore. What's that about? I've got another story from the same church. In a large church, you have a lot of deacons. In the Bible, the word deacon is a transliteration where you, you take one word and the way it sounds and you move that sound over into the new language. So... Baptizo means to immerse, and that became baptize. Here's the difference, the, the similarity, baptizo, baptize. It's not really a translation. It doesn't really explain anything for us. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos. Diakonos, deacon. Hear the sound? Again, it's not a translation. If you were to translate deacon or diakonos, you would talk about somebody who does service. Another word is, is ministry, but that's really a confusing word because a lot of times we think of church ministers, and that's not what it's about. Ministry is serving another person. Ministry is, is taking care of others. It's being otherly. This really describes a person who gives their time and resources to others, to help others. Some people, well, the Bible doesn't say this, but some people think that the seven that were chosen in Acts chapter 6 to help the widows in Jerusalem were the first deacons. Again, it doesn't say that. It just says seven men were chosen to take care of these widows. But the work that they do is deacon-like work. They had widows that were not being taken care of, and, and the apostles in Jerusalem said, would you guys take care of these people? Would you make sure that their needs are met? That's the work of a deacon. In the modern church, to be appointed a deacon is thought of as being appointed to an office. It sounds like promotion. It sounds like being given a place of honor. Oh, I want to be a deacon. But I really think, based on what I know about the word deacon, that deacon is, has less to do with uh, appointment and more to do with attitude. So in the biblical sense, the person that gets appointed to be a deacon 
again, I use that word, but get, gets asked to do the work of being a deacon, has already demonstrated the attitude, the, the leaning, the inclination into being a person of service. Either you willingly serve people or you don't. At the church in question, we had a deacon who didn't deek. He did not do what you expect deacons to do. He did nothing. I don't know what, what that was all about, why the elders, he was a deacon when we moved there, but I don't know why they asked him to be a deacon. Was it that he gave lots of money? You know, I've seen that happen in churches before. I'm sure you have as well. So I remember the, the night that the elders were talking about him and they were wringing their hands going, what are we going to do about him? He doesn't deep. He doesn't do anything. He just comes to church. He appears and then he leaves. He's not hospitable. He doesn't invite other people over to his house. He comes, he takes the Lord's Supper, listens to a sermon, and disappears. What shall we do? They decided that they needed to throw him a bone. They needed to, to do something to him that would get him to doing something. But you know what they asked him to do? They asked him to take care of the track rack in the foyer of the church building not ministry. That's a, a meaningless, menial task that has no connection whatsoever to the needs of people. But they, they thought that uh, they were showing him favor by doing that. They neglected to ask the most fundamental question about him. And that was whether his life was given to ministry or service. The answer would have been no. The answer would not have been to just give him a task to try to get him to doing something that was actually rather meaningless. I think that all of this stuff that I've been telling you by way of introduction has something to do with our understanding of the grander scheme that God has. So I wrote this sermon on September 15th, and on that day, I just read a quote from Facebook from an old friend of mine, and it said something like this. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, is often quoted only with respect to, to God's love for us. Oh, what a God I serve. Look what he has done for me and for us. He's given his son. My friend goes on and says, but they ignore the cosmic plan that God has in place and that God's working on right now. I think he's right, frankly. I think what we've done is, if, is we've, we've sort of dumbed down what God is doing in the world. 
rather than thinking of how huge it is, how grand it is, how eternal it is. By doing that, by doing what we do, we make God's work shallow. We limit the scope and the significance and the cost of God's work whenever we do that. So we should be asking, what is God doing out of our sight? What, what, what beats in God's heart? It's there. It's in the pages of the Bible. If we take the time to read it and to think about what is being said about our God. How... How does God manage our transformation? How does he make us into the new people that we are? And Biblical writers hinted at these things. Uh, the book of Genesis is the first time in the Bible that we see any sort of indication about what God is up to. Remember the scene. Adam and Eve are standing before God, embarrassed dressed in a fig leaf, going, oh my word, we've been caught. And God tells them what the consequence of that is going to be. And among all the things he says, God tells Eve that her offspring will crush the head of the serpent. It's a really important text. He's not talking about Cain and Abel offspring. He's talking about Jesus who's going to come later. Satan, of course, is who the snake really was in the story. And God says to her, your offspring, Jesus, is going to crush the head of of the serpent. The best that the serpent will ever do, the only thing that he will ever do, the most dramatic or brave thing that the snake will do is to nip at the heel of the offspring of the woman. Well, that nipping at the heel of Jesus was the cross. But in terms of its eternal effect, it was really only a nip. But Jesus killed the serpent with a blow to the head. Now, we start to understand something about what God is doing. This is not something that you can dumb down. This is not something that you can reduce to to uh, some little day-to-day -day task that we do. At the other end of the Bible, so this was Genesis, in Revelation, John writes that Jesus was crucified from the foundation of the world. So I think John is telling us, look, go back. Read Genesis 3.15. God was thinking about this. Back then, when the earth was fresh and new. And I declare that to you today. 
what Revelation is all about, by the way. I mention this because I think that to understand and appreciate Ephesians 2.8, we have to understand the mind of God. This text is really very, very simple. Listen to what Paul says to us. God saved you by his grace. You can't take credit for that. It is a gift from God. He goes on and he says, We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned long ago. Now, he's not talking about good things, taking cookies to your neighbor. God is talking about good things that pertain to this cosmic plan that God's involved in. I wish Amanda was here. Recently, she, she talked with me about feeling spiritually flat. I think we've all felt that, don't, don't you? We're not straight line. You know, we don't all live on the mountaintop all the time. We have those mountaintop moments, but a lot of time we're down in the valley. More often than not, the thing that we have to struggle against is spiritual inertia, the loss of momentum, the loss of, of direction, of, of just feeling bleh. Paul is full of praise for God's loving and persistent plan to redeem us. And I think part of the answer to feeling blah is to go back and reconnect with what God is doing. If we love God, if we want to be in sync with God, we have to be thinking about what God is doing. We don't deserve this love, this redemption. And it is the highest or lowest form of ingratitude when we act put off by what God expects for us. My life is so busy. I've got so many things going on. I don't have time for that. That's when I want to say, really? Have you thought that through? Have you thought about the implications of that? To ever say that sort of thing to God? In the first paragraph of Ephesians 1. It's a huge paragraph, by the way. It erupts with all of these verbs about what God has done for us. Listen to this. Blessed us. Loved us. Chose us. Adopted us. Poured out His glorious grace on us. Purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son forgave all our sins. How do I ever stand before that God and say, I don't have time for you? I don't have time to do what you have asked me to do. It's quite a list. And I think we need to be reminded of it from time to time. If you think about what God has invested in us, you start to understand what God's hopes are for us. 
you start to, to go, oh, I see what God's up to. I see what God is doing. It's not logical. It makes no sense to think that God would give up his son for us to be indolent and lacking in divine direction. It, it just makes no sense. And that's where, where God's spirit living in us comes in. That's where our being thoughtful and prayerful and, and desirous of living the way God wants us to live. I recently encountered a, a threesome that, that I often see on the bike path. We stop and occasionally chat. And we normally exchange pleasantries and go our separate ways. One of these days when I have time and they have time, I have some questions I want to ask them about what they did for a living. They're retired now and some other things. I'd really like to get to know them a little more. Recently, I, I uh, mentioned to them that I'd read a headline that week that said a storm was coming off the Pacific into our area of the state. One of the guys in the group looked, looked dismissive. Like, can't trust any of that stuff. Sort of a, I'll believe it when I see it look. He said, I'm from Realville. To which I said, boy, you're a cynic. And, you know, normally, I was kind of joking with him, but normally you'd respond to that with a, no, I'm not. And he agreed. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Yeah, you're right, I'm a cynic. I doubt that my bike path friend is... is uh, seriously a Christian. He may be in, in name only, but he's, he's too cynical. He's too pessimistic. Listen to what Paul says. The mysterious plan of God regarding Christ, God's purpose for the Jews. I ask God to give you spiritual wisdom now, I don't mean that this means you should believe every weather report. I don't mean that at all. But on the, other, on, on the other hand, I think that living as God's child, living underneath God's purposes, makes me optimistic. I think it, it makes you say, I know what God's got in store for us. I know what God's got laid out for us. That's the optimism that the Spirit of God living in us gives us. Not Pollyanna. Doesn't mean you don't have days that you feel low as a toad. But it do, does mean that, that you, you season all those moments with this optimism that says, I know what God's doing. I know what, what God has reserved for me and everybody else who loves him and lives according to his calling. So what does this all mean? I want to go back to Amanda's comment about spiritual flatness. We're, 
we're emotional, changeable creatures, and I expect some of that to happen, right? You just, you can't help it. You've had a bad day. Somebody said something to you at work that devastated you. You know, we have those days. On the other hand, what is the antidote to just giving in to those times and just living there? I think that's what Amanda was talking about and, and questioning. If you have a basically positive, optimistic view of the future, then you're more prone to lean into that future. To say that my life has meaning because I'm joining God in His work. I'm doing what God wants me to do. Paul said, I love this text. God created us so that we could do, listen to the language. God created us so that we could do the good things God planned for us long ago. Paul is talking about our, our participating in the work of God. That's the antiseptic, the antithetic to giving into indolence and boredom. That's how you do it. Doesn't mean that every day is going to be happy and smiley. But it does mean that every day is going to be hopeful and joyful at a deeper level because you know the God you serve. I think it also informs the questions that spin around in your head. Uh, where do I see God at work in my world? Where are the things that I see going on? Um, I think Monica Gracefully's work is a place where I see that happening. Uh, see it happening in, in places that uh, people take care of the lowly, the lowly and uh, places where, where people stand up for the truth rather than for lies. All of those are places that I could join and become part of what God is doing in the world. This, this text, let me read it to you again. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. God is the one that created us. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. What a text. What glory that is to know that I, lowly, bruised, low, can be part of what God is doing. That is a sign, that is a cause for joy. Let's pray. Oh God, even in the beginning, before there was a fall, 
before the creation spun into chaos, even then you gave mankind purpose. Tend the garden, you said. Now in the complexity of our times, you have instructed us to love one another and to be a light to the world. We pray that you will help us to fight out, fight off the demons of indifference and dryness. May we be motivated by your love for us and this world to be fruitful like you are. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.